Resuming debate. Resuming debate. Resuming debate. Hello there. Garnet Jenis back with another episode of the Resuming Debate podcast. I'm excited that we're going to be trying this year to bring you a new episode every week talking about uh, critical current issues and also uh, digging deeper into some of the background around them. Uh, and also, uh, we're going to be mixing up the format a little bit, having more feature-length interviews uh, instead of the, uh, the two-part format that we've generally done in the past. And today, I am so excited about the uh, very special, very prominent guest we have, uh, Bill Browder, uh, someone who, who really needs no introduction for those that, that follow events in Russia and Eastern Europe, as well as international human rights advocacy. Uh, Bill was the biggest investor in Russia, uh, and, and he, as a result of some, some experiences that, that he had with the Putin regime, uh, has now gone uh, from the biggest investor to Russia to the, the biggest uh, international human rights activist vis-a-vis -vis the situation in Russia. So, uh, Bill, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation today. I'm glad to be here and, and um, honored to be with you, who I, I consider to be one of the true heroes of human rights in Canada. And so it's, um, it's, it's great, to, great to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. I'll, I'll, I'll pay you afterwards for those, uh, those kind of words. But um, uh, your, your, your book, Red Notice, is one that I think everyone should read. Um, it, it shares your story uh, as, um, as this... Uh, you know, rebellious American kid who uh, you know, the, the most rebellious thing you could do in your family was to become a capitalist coming from a family of uh, some, some prominent, uh, prominent uh, communists and in the US and then becoming a, a, a big investor and, and all the things you experienced being in, in Eastern Europe and Russia. Uh, everyone should, should buy and read your book because we don't have time to, to give the full synopsis. But uh, if you could start off by those who are less familiar with story by just sharing, sharing where you came from and how you ended up uh, so, so involved in events in Russia. Sure. So, um, uh, as you mentioned, I, I come from a sort of strange American family. I, uh, I was born in Princeton, New Jersey, um, grew up in Chicago, but my um, family was, um, well, I should say my grandfather was a um, labor union organizer from Wichita, Kansas. And he was so good at organizing the union that um, he was spotted by the communists. And they said, if you like labor unionism, you're going to love communism. Uh, why don't you come to Russia, check it out. And so he moved to Moscow in 1927. Uh, he met a young Russian girl who became my grandmother and uh, my father was born there and then five years later they returned to america and he became the general secretary of the american communist party he ran for president against roosevelt uh, in 1936 and 1940 um, he was imprisoned by roosevelt in 1941 pardoned in 42 um, he eventually was kicked out of the communist party in 1945 for being too much of a capitalist and then viciously persecuted um, during the 1950s, during the McCarthy era for his obvious um, communist connections. So this is my family legacy. Um, I was born in 1964, I'm 57 years old. But when I was going through my uh, teenage rebellion in the 1970s, I was trying to figure out a good way of, of uh, rebelling from this family of communists. And um, I tried out several things that didn't work. I grew my hair long and um, uh, it um, grew into an Afro um, and, and that strangely didn't upset my family. I followed the Grateful Dead around the country for a couple months. That didn't upset my family. Uh, but then I finally came up with the perfect way of upsetting my family, which was to put on a suit and tie and become a capitalist. And, and um, there was nothing that upset my family more than that. So I became a capitalist. I went to Stanford Business School. I graduated business school in 1989, which was a very um, auspicious year because that was the year that the Berlin Wall came down. Um, and as I was trying to figure out what to do post-business school, I had an epiphany one day, which is that if my grandfather is the biggest communist in America um, and the Berlin Wall has just come down, I'm going to try to become the biggest capitalist in Eastern Europe. And so post-Stanford, that's what I set out to do. I moved to London and then I eventually moved to Moscow and I um, ended up um, setting up an investment fund. Um, it was called the Hermitage Fund to invest in the um, Russian stock market. Uh, after the mass privatization program at the end of the, at the breakup of the Soviet Union. Yeah, so a, a fascinating story. And again, I, I can't recommend your, your, uh, your book enough to people. Um, 
America and Russia, two very different worlds, um, obviously in, in terms of the political systems, but also at a deeper cultural level. Uh, tell us a bit about just how how Russia is different, how Russian politics are different. Uh, what are the what are the things that maybe are are often misunderstood in terms of that um, that significant cultural cleavage? Well, so when I got to Russia, um, it was a few years after the fall of the Berlin Wall and a few years after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, and um, they kind of uh, declared themselves to be no longer communist. Um, they uh, kind of declared themselves to be a capitalist country where people could do business and own property. And they, they did all this. And, and then they did a mass privatization program where they gave everything away to the people or they wanted to give everything away to the people for free to create a, a country full of property owners. And the, the thing that they hadn't really thought about in all of these things was um, it was kind of like building a house and, and they forgot to put in the plumbing and electricity. And so the plumbing and electricity was the rule of law and property rights and, and, and it kind of affected everything. And so, you know, they had, they had democracy, so to speak, but, um, you know, they were stuffing the ballot boxes. They had, um, you know, banks, but um, the bank owners were stealing from the depositors. Um, they, they had uh, public companies, but the uh, majority shareholders were stealing all the profits out the back door. And so it was this kind of, um, theoretical country where everybody was was um, kind of operating on a very basic level. And, and it wasn't like any, I don't think these people even thought themselves to be corrupt. They just thought themselves to be, you know, just, you know, this was, you know, no, nobody had trained them any differently. And and so you you basically had a, a, had a country which, um, where everything was new, everything was um, wild west and, and anyone could do anything. And, and it created all sorts of opportunities, business opportunities, political opportunities. I mean, any, anyone could become anything um, at that point in time, but at the same time, it also um, created a lot of terrible um, disparities for, for the average Russian. Most, you know, you, you, you kind of had to have sharp elbows to succeed there. And most Russians were just like regular, honest day-to-day -day people that didn't have sharp elbows. And so they ended up um, losing out on everything. Um, the, you know, if, if you, um, just kind of played by the rules. Um, you know, if you just collected your salary as a professor, you ended up becoming impoverished. If you, um, you know, if you played fairly in almost anything, um, it, it was a, uh, a bad situation. And so most Russians were being um, uh, humiliated, I guess, in a, in a really terrible way. And, and, and I think this is what created the seeds of, of the dictatorship that we have right now, which is that, um, uh, you know, so many people were, in, in, in so many different ways, put in so many unpleasant situations that, that um, everybody was sort of looking for some way to get back at, at whatever they thought the problem was. And that's Putin came in and kind of offered them what, what people thought was hope, but they, they ended up um, discovering that, that um, it was even worse than before. Mm -hmm. So this, this, I think, helps, helps to explain um, why there was that nostalgia for the the kind of um, so Soviet period that Putin played up on this the, the kind of chaos of of a kind of cartoonish version of capitalism that wasn't um, that wasn't a capitalist system as we understand it, but that was um, that was uh, th that hadn't improved people's lives in the way they expect, and therefore there was this this nostalgia for for uh, Russian greatness as well as for some level of uh, of order is that is that a fair synopsis of of how we got from there to here? Well, I I think it is a very fair synopsis because everybody felt um, you know the the everyone associated democracy and capitalism um, with um, chaos and humiliation, and so that was the um, basis for which um, you know that that's kind of why we are where we are. I mean, unfortunately, everybody as soon has since realized that that. Um, now that um, they didn't get the the nostalgic version of the Soviet Union, however, however anyone remembered that they didn't, you know, I mean, and there and there were some good things about the Soviet Union. I mean, you know, nobody was hungry, nobody was starving, um, you know, everybody was educated, uh, um, life was predictable in in a lot of different ways, 
um, they got all the bad parts of the Soviet Union without the good part. So, so hmm. life continues to be impoverished and unpredictable and horrible. But now they have all the same sort sort of you know secret police and and you know um, no democracy and no no uh, can't say what you think. You have to like whisper it in your kitchen, and um, and so you end up in a in a situation where where it's now you have the the worst of both worlds. You're the worst of that terrible period of time when they were just discovering capitalism and the worst of the um, totalitarian um, lifestyle of the Soviet Union. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a really, really important point. So uh, as we look at the kind of emerging, emerging crisis threats of invasion in, in Ukraine, I think connecting to what you're talking about, about the um, maybe the, the nostalgia that was there at the beginning, but the, the unfulfilled promise of the, of the Putin dictatorship, um, a lot of people I've talked to have, have said that that part of the threat to Ukraine comes from Putin's declining popularity inside of Russia, uh, and he has this history of um, of of uh, using extreme violence to try to uh, shift attention when he's facing personal unpopularity. Um, I, I'd love to hear your reflections on um, how the dynamic you just described is informing Putin's own popularity. Uh, in Russia, how we can know or how we can measure uh, how how popular he is or isn't, and um, and and the extent to which these these kind of foreign aggression uh, things being con contemplated may come out of that uh, unpopularity. Well, I'm I'm really glad you <clears throat> you're focusing on this, and and um, I think you're one of the knowledgeable ones, or or have gained the knowledge um, uh, in in your question about this because. What what Putin is doing right now is all. It's not a function of anything to do with the history of the Soviet Union. It, it has to do with Vladimir Putin's own weakness and his own fear. So let's just look at Vladimir Putin um, and go back in time a little bit. When when he first came to power, um, nobody knew who he was, and and he kind of presented this this image that he was going to be cleaning everything up and making life better, and um, that really wasn't. His intention. He didn't clean anything up. He made life worse. And and uh, you know, people were angry with the oligarchs. Um, and he said he was going to get rid of the oligarchs. But instead, he became the biggest oligarch himself. One of the biggest parts of his leadership was to steal as much money as possible from as many people as possible, um, uh, from the state, from other people, from everybody. Um, and. And he's, he's accumulated a, a vast, vast fortune. And as he's accumulated this vast fortune, um, it, comes at, it comes at somebody else's expense and it comes at the expense of the Russian people. And so, um, you know, the hospitals are barren. There's no equipment there. The, the um, schools don't have textbooks. They, they can't pay the teachers. There's huge potholes in the roads. All that money is, is that should have been um, spent on the Russian people has been... Uh, stolen by Putin and, and about a thousand other people who surround him. Um, and it's been spent on villas and private planes and yachts and all sorts of other stuff. And most of that money is no longer in Russia. And so after about 20 years of this, people have gotten really angry. They're saying, you know, I, 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 and they're not angry. They're not, they're not necessarily angry at anybody, just angry that they're hungry and, and they haven't gotten what they want. And and as, after some period of time, they, they, they look to their leader and say, well, you know, uh, you can't blame this on anybody else now. <laughs> this, this, is, this is on you. And, and so um, what, what does a guy like Putin do in that situation? It's not like he says, okay, we better really improve the livelihoods and standard of living of our people because that would mean giving back the money he stole, which he has no intention of doing. So what does he do? He, um, he starts to go after the people who are most vocal inside the country of complaining. Um, and arrests them, tries to kill others. So he killed Boris Nemtsov, who was a um, former uh, uh, leader of the opposition. Um, he tried to kill Alexei Navalny, who is um, uh, another very popular opposition character who um, they, they, he tried to poison with Novichok. <clears throat> but, but just getting rid of the, the, the most powerful voices of dissent <clears throat> isn't enough for Putin. <clears throat> he needed to... Um, to try to do something else. And, and it's sort of standard in the dictator's playbook that if people are angry with you, you need to deflect their anger towards some, somebody else. And so 
that's what this whole conflict in Ukraine is about. And it didn't start today. But, and by the way, everyone says, you know, is he going to invade Ukraine or is he not going to invade Ukraine? Uh, <clears throat> Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine in 2014. Russian mm -hmm. soldiers who were on site in Crimea took Crimea. And then uh, effective Russian mercenaries um, have invaded Eastern Ukraine. And he's been running a, a war ever since then. And, and, and his popularity has, has um, improved. Um, uh, or, you know, his, his, his poll ratings, however you want to measure those, have improved because people generally rally around the leader when there's a, uh, uh, a foreign, you know, enemy, where there, when there's a bad situation. And, and, uh, and it, recently, he's been in, in a particularly bad situation over the last two years, like many other leaders around the world, because COVID has just, only, you know, on top of the 20 years of dictatorship and money stealing and bad standard of living and economic stagnation, you now have a, uh, a pandemic, uh, lockdowns, uh, economic contraction. And so all this stuff, you know, has put Putin in a particularly bad position and he needed something to, um, uh, he needed something to, to bolster his popularity and to ensure that, that he doesn't get replaced or overthrown by somebody else who, who comes in. And, um, and all this sending troops to the border and, and making demands of NATO and, and all this kind of stuff is all part of part and parcel of his, his I would say weakness, his desperation, his his feeling that he needs to do something to shore up his position at home. Mm -hmm. So, staying with that issue of of public opinion in Russia, um, someone said to me once, and it's it's really stuck with me that at some point the Russian people will will choose between uh, the refrigerator and the television set, uh, <laughs> meaning that they'll 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 choose between um, these, these promises of, of glory and, and uh, rallying around a leader in a time of conflict and, and the realities of their quality of life just not, uh, not improving in the way that the regime had, had promised and in some respects getting worse. Um, it, it, at what point do you think the Russian people um, are, are seeing through this tactic? Uh, and um, you know the 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 invasion of Ukraine. It it, it started started in 2014. Uh, you know maybe there was a, the public opinion bump at the time. We saw this with with Chechnya right at the beginning of Putin's Putin's regime. But, but at, at what point do people say, okay, we've seen this movie before. Uh, we know what you're doing, and um, and we've had enough. Uh, but but also then, what meaningful ways would there be for them to express that that sentiment in light of all the all the repression? Well, in, in a normal democratic country, <clears throat> there would be opposition candidates who would be saying exactly those things and pointing it out and, and you know, messaging, you know, constantly in speeches and, and so on and so forth. Um, but we don't, and Russia's not a normal democratic country and, and anyone who has said those things is immediately um, imprisoned, exiled or killed. Um, and so what you have now is a situation where um, it, it's almost more brittle in a sense because the more the pressure cooker um, inflates with pressure without any kind of release, um, the, the more explosive it will be when people finally have had enough. And we got a small taste of this in Kazakhstan a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. In Kazakhstan, um, it's been, it's kind of, I would say, almost a caricatured version of this kleptocracy that Russia has. And um, sort of out of nowhere, everybody just got so angry, and it was it was set off by um, uh, gas prices going up for liquid uh, liquid gas that people use to power their cars there, um, and it was violent. And maybe some of the violence was was premeditated, but um, that was just like a little, just a tiny little uh, taster of what what Russia could look like at some point um, when people lose their patience, but. Your question is, when can we see that? And, and the answer is, I don't know. Um, and most importantly, Vladimir Putin doesn't know. And that's what he's most afraid of. I mean, he, he's most afraid of, of you know, he, he's seen the videos of Ceausescu being hung from a tank and, and Gaddafi, you know, uh, killed in, in, uh, in a tunnel. Um, and, and that's not the way he wants to go. And so he's going to do everything possible. And, and Everything that he does is all about self-preservation. It's about preserving the, the money he's stolen, preserving his freedom, and and most importantly, preserving his life. Mm -hmm. 
So, yeah, th th this whole idea of color revolutions, right? As as they're as they're often called, right? Where people um, people are people get upset, they take to the streets, and they they force a, a political change. Um, it, it seems that this is the the greatest fear of the of the regime, right? So they they do everything possible to um, not only to prevent that from happening in their own country, but to to discredit these kinds of efforts in in other countries. And that's that's part of why Ukraine um, Ukraine's uh, democratization uh, was seen as such a threat by the Putin regime because it maybe provided an example of a, a path that Russia could follow. Is that is that part of the dynamic here as well? <clears throat> Definitely. So um, uh, it, it, these things are contagious, by the way. So remember when you know, Tunisia, you know, started with a, um, a fruit vendor setting himself on fire, which led to the overthrow of the Tunisian government, which led to the overthrow of the Egyptian government, which led to the Syrian civil war. Um, uh, you know, these things are contagious. And so uh, it, not so contagious, you know, from the Middle East, to um, Eastern Europe and Soviet former Soviet Union, but um, if something like this succeeds in a in a neighboring country, um, the Russians um, will watch that and say, "Well, wait a second, you know, if the Ukrainians can join the European Union and live like five times better than us, which is what kind of what happens when a country joins the European Union, which was the path that Ukraine wanted to go on, um, why should we be doing this this whole sort of?" Um, you know, totalitarian experiment, which doesn't seem to make our lives better, and we can't even say what we think. And um, and so Putin is desperate to make sure that around him that doesn't happen. Um, <clears throat> and so, for example, in, in Belarus, um, the people, they had an election, a fraudulent election there <clears throat> um, about a year, a year ago, a year and a half ago. And um, the people rose up in Belarus, and there was massive um, protests across the country. And Putin sent his own sent his own people in to um, uh, help uh, the dictator Lukashenko put that down. Same thing in Kazakhstan, where they, um, the, they the Russians sent in troops to put down the uprising in Kazakhstan. <clears throat> and in Ukraine, there hasn't been. I mean, there's been a series of uprisings. There was an uprising which um, uh, which replaced the Russian um, sympathetic uh, uh, kleptocrat who was running the place. And and that's always and and when he was replaced, that's always been a a thorn in Putin's side, um, for sure. But but I, I would say that what's going on in Ukraine right now is probably more to do with just having a war than it is to prevent it. I mean, th this co colored revolution stuff happened a long time ago, and this is I think he needs a war. He needs a war right now, or, or something close to it, so that he can you know he he can just be a wartime president and anyone who's you know, being disloyal um, will quickly, you know, lose that sentiment um, because everybody is rallying around the leader. I think he's really scared right now. He needs a war. Um, and that's what this is about. And, and I mean, all these things fit together as well. He, I mean, he's never been happy with Ukraine wanting to, to go in the direction of the European Union. He's never been happy with Ukraine having Western leanings. He's, uh, you know, the idea that Ukraine could become part of NATO is, is extremely irritating to him. But the, 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 the crux of this, in my mind, is just that, you know, uh, he needs to distract people um, away from their anger towards him, towards somebody else. Yeah, but so, so many, so many great points there. This, this phenomenon of, of democratic contagion that can happen, especially within, um, within a, a culturally similar uh, area where, you know, th throughout the, the Arab world, we saw, we saw that democratic contagion. Uh, the, the fear that Putin has of this happening uh, in in Eastern Europe, uh, but at the same time, um, to say that that right now, um, although that's still in the background, Putin is is looking for um, he's looking for a war. He's looking for so so. How do we respond to that then? If 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 um, because the premise of negotiation is that you have two different sides uh, with specific objectives who who broadly agree that uh that they're better off negotiating mm -hmm. to get to some kind of resolution uh in order to prevent costly conflict but if one side is just committed to conflict because it's it's not the the formal objectives but it's the conflict itself that they are seeking um then 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 what do we do in that situation if, that, if that's what, what we're dealing with right now how do we respond 
Well, the first way we respond is to recognize what you just said, which is that you can't negotiate if one side doesn't want to negotiate because they, they want the conflict. But there's but, but it's, it's very easy calculation. <clears throat> so Putin is saying to himself, um, there's, there's rewards for, for doing this, and there's risks for doing this. The rewards are what we've just been talking about, which is that um, he shores up his political strength and influence. He, 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 uh, he ends up becoming more popular. That's the obvious upside for him. Um, and the downside um, is at the moment um, kind of hard for him to calculate because in the past, um, there hasn't been any huge downside for him to, to there was no huge downside, there was no downside at all um, uh, with Georgia um, when they when uh, they took Abkhazia and South Ossetia, um, there was no downside. There, there was really very little downside um, to taking Crimea. There was a few sanctions, but uh, that that didn't seem to cause him any great pain. Hardly any downside in eastern Ukraine. No downside in shooting down MH17. No downside in bombing uh, uh, hospitals in Syria. <laughs> no downside in hacking the U.S. elections. And so he, he's kind of used to um, no downside. And so if we wanna stop him from doing this, we have to present a credible picture of downside and downside that he appreciates. And, and um, uh, I mean, it's, it's quite remarkable to me to watch all these um, leaders, these Western leaders sort of um, all saying different things and, and pretty much saying nothing. So they're all saying, we wanna have diplomacy. Well, what is diplomacy? You know, begging? Is, is diplomacy begging? Is diplomacy giving in? Is it appeasement? Is it giving him what he wants? Um, because it's certainly um, none of them are presenting a, a, a sort of cohesive and credible package of downside, which is what he needs to see. And so there, there, there are a bunch of things we can do to make life more painful in this scenario. I mean, the most obvious thing is, is um, if, we, if we don't want to go and fight in a war with Russia ourselves, which is pretty clear that n none of us want to do, um, then we should certainly give Ukraine all, all the weapons that we can muster up to let them defend themselves. And, um, you know, that started to happen, uh, certainly happening more now than it was before. The British government has given them, I think, a $1.9 billion uh, defense loan and, and flying in stuff the U.S. has done. I think, if I read correctly, Canada has, has put together a $120 million defense package. Um, you know, th th these are good things, <clears throat> not dramatically good things. I don't think that this mm -hmm. is going to change the equation, but it's it's a start and the Ukrainians appreciate it. But the real place where we can create downside is with Vladimir Putin personally. And mm -hmm. and the, the, the easy way of doing that is to just come back to the analysis of who he is and how he got to where he was in the first place. And he is a kleptocrat, first and foremost. He's stolen an enormous amount of money and he values his money. Mm -hmm. And and he doesn't keep that money in his own name. He keeps that money in the name of people who hold it for him, what I call oligarch trustees. Mm -hmm. And those oligarch trustees don't keep that money in Russia, they keep it in the West. And this is Putin's huge exposed flank. This is his huge Achilles heel, because if we were to sanction, and I say sanction, freeze the assets of the oligarch trustees that look after Putin's money, Putin would see a big downside to what he's doing, a big and very personal downside. Mm -hmm. That and, seems like it should be a really easy thing to do. I mean, if if, if we're able to identify uh, the names of the people in whom Putin has his money, if we can freeze those assets, um, then it, it seems fairly obvious that that clearly communicating that that will be a consequence. I mean, it, it's it's sort of baffling on some level in light of all the aggression that we've seen that that hasn't been done already um but um but is there but but why why have nations in the west kind of hesitated at uh at at using that sort of ultimate <laughs> sanctions trigger uh that still doesn't really cost us anything in 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 uh in a significant terms and and would really hit him where it hurts well i i i think part of it is that um a lot of our western leaders want to be seen to be doing something, but are actually scared to do something that they know will really hit them where it counts. 
I think that that they're they're kind of scared. I mean, they, they may be personally scared that that you know that that they're going to be assassinated if they do this. I mean, this is something. This is really going right to the jugular. I mean, you know, there's no messing around. Um, and and I mean, it's it's so asymmetric. <laughs> Um, mm-hmm. You know, we, we don't have to engage in any military conflict. We don't have to um, I- even experience any kind of economic pain from this. All we have to do, and, and, and we, know, we know who these people are. We don't, we don't, there's no mystery about these people. All we have to do is, is identify them um, and freeze their assets and use the Magnitsky Act, which, which um, exists to do this. The Magnitsky Act says anybody who's involved in, in um, corruption or human rights abuse can have their assets frozen. We can prove these people are involved in corruption. We know who they are, we should just freeze them. And, and, and we don't have to do it all at once. We can do it in, in stages. We can, we can start with uh, five, we can make a list of 50 and we sanction five today to say, just to show you we're serious, we're gonna, we're, we're gonna freeze the assets of these five of your trustees. Um, you have you have ten days to move your your military equipment back from the border, or another five goes. And and you know what, and and, and if you don't, um, and and you go forward, um, the whole fifty will be sanctioned. I guarantee you that Putin would not invade Ukraine because he doesn't <clears throat> want to lose all his wealth. Hmm. Yeah, that when when you when you frame it in those terms, it seems uh, it seems so clear cut, you know, that this isn't, this isn't going to, that we could prevent war through aggressive pointed sanctions. Um, and we, we've talked so much about sanctions and it's, um, it, it's true. Governments want to look like they're doing things. So we always hear an announcements of additional sanctions, but the critical question that we need to be asking, it seems is, are those sanctions hitting where it counts? Are those the, 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 the right sanctions that are, that are aimed at um, deterring behavior, or are those sanctions aimed at, uh, at at satisfying a domestic audience? Well, like for example, they've just announced um, like one of the sanctions they want to do is to sanction future oil development. <laughs> I mean, you know that that ain't going to do nothing. You know, Vladimir mm-hmm. Putin's. I mean, you know, I mean, any kind of long term strategic, you know, person might say, well, that's not good. But Putin, that's, he doesn't care about that. He cares about his own money. Right. Right, so so he's he, he he's in it for himself. So that's that's where we have to have the sanctions. So so let's talk at, at the same time. The, the sanctions piece is is critically important, but let's talk also about deterring um, deterring uh, invasion, further invasion. We should say through uh, through weaponry, through uh, defense commitments, and other things. Uh, you know, clearly clearly Russia is not contemplating an invasion of the Baltic states because the Baltic states are members of NATO. Right, uh, that as much as as Putin complains about NATO enlargement, that uh, having um, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia under that umbrella of cl- clear collective security commitments uh, means that um, that they have, relatively speaking, compared to Ukraine uh, and, and Georgia, um, been been left alone. So, um, should should we be looking uh, now or in the future at the kind of binding security commitments? Uh, being made to to Ukraine and Georgia uh, that are being that have been made to the the Baltic states and to Poland, um, what what would the impact of that be, uh, and what are the risks of of doing that? That that the, the possibility of NATO membership might provoke kind of advance uh, advance intervention prior to uh, prior to that membership. Well, it's it's a complicated story <clears throat> for a lot of different reasons. The the one that the, the most complicated part is that um, Ukraine and Georgia, um, you know, m- might be well. I mean, Georgia right now is is run by a guy who's um, sort of you know uh, questionable yeah. <laughs> about his yeah. allegiances. I mean, uh, and Ukraine could easily be replaced. I mean, you know, th- these are these are really kind of um, uh, you know sort of primitive places and, and, and they could be, the democracies are primitive and they could be de- replaced by, you know, the, the, the people running them could end up being, you know, uh, not, not the kinds of people we wanna, um, you know, defend in some point for, for some reason. I mean, even Turkey as a member of NATO well. raises questions. Um, and so, I mean, NATO is, 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 a, is, a, is kind of a complex organization. Um, and uh, I think that, that these, Countries before they ever become members of NATO have to prove that they're, you know, bona fides as, as members of the 
you know, honest, democratic uh, world before before we take them in and, and want to protect them. Um, I mean, you know, Ukraine is doing itself no favors at the same, you know, begging begging for help against the Russians, and at the same time, prosecuting their former president as a traitor. Um, you know, uh, you know, right now, uh, Zelensky is going after Poroshenko. It doesn't make him the most sort of sympathetic guy we want to defend. I mean, we want to defend him because we don't like Russia. We don't necessarily want to defend him because he's this great westernized leader that we think is honest and good and and uh, full of virtue. And so it, mm-hmm. it's it, it's it's you know, it's not a black and white situation. The only thing that, that's black and white is we don't want Russia going around telling everybody them, you know, who's going to be their slave country and who's not. Yeah, I know from a Canadian perspective, uh, there's, there's a very close tie between Canada and Ukraine, and a lot of it's driven by that strong diaspora connection. And I know the Ukrainian diaspora here in, in particular is vocal about uh, the need to stand with and defend Ukraine, but also support um, uh, support uh, anti-corruption initiatives and, and measures that are going to uh, to continue to, to to strengthen the trajectory of uh, of Ukrainian democracy. Um, and I take your point about you know the, the nature of NATO. Um, I, I suppose the, the counter argument might be that uh, there's always a risk, especially now with the nature of the world as it is. There's always a risk of of democratic backsliding. We've seen it in a significant way in in Turkey, and you you can't really rule that out. Um, almost anywhere. And maybe that's a, just a, 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 a fundamental problem with NATO not having a, an expulsion mechanism. Uh, but but is there a way to have, I guess, short of NATO membership, if, if we say, okay, we, we, we want to invite these countries to be on a trajectory towards NATO membership, that they may not be, uh, that, that, that there may not be a consensus that they're ready for right now. I mean, can, can there still be some kind of binding security guarantees that are given if, if, if the United States were to say, well, uh, we're going we're gonna to have people on the ground ready to fight alongside the Ukrainians? I mean, what, what would the impact of that be? Could, could that kind of interim security guarantee be, be provided in a way that would be meaningful and, and deter Russian uh, aggression? Well, um, <clears throat> such a guarantee was um, actually provided. Um, there, right. was a, there, there, there was something called the Budapest Memorandum yeah. um, after the um, fall of the Soviet Union. Um, the United States, Great Britain, um, uh, Russia, and Ukraine um, all signed a, a memorandum in Budapest, a, a, you know, a binding uh, agreement that said if if Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons, then then all three countries would guarantee Ukraine its territorial integrity. And so I would argue. Um, putting aside NATO, that the United States and Great Britain um, and Russia, for that matter, but obviously they're they're the antagonist here. Uh, but the United States and Great Britain have have a um, uh, sort of treaty duty to to um, uh, to defend Ukraine above and beyond just to supplying um, uh, military equipment. I mean, it's you know we asked them to give up their nuclear capability, and now they're being um, they've already had part, pieces of the of their country taken over and 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 now there's a threat of much more and so um uh, I, I mean i think it is a it, it's it, it's it's kind of unbelievable if you will that you know that that su- such an agreement could be just completely ignored and no one's even talking about it right now it's not even yeah. as if th- this is something that's um, part of the conversation yeah no that's a that, that's a good point but i i i suppose if if today uh the British and American governments were prepared to telegraph um, that any uh, any any further invasions would be would be seen in the context of a uh, of, of the commitments they made under the Budapest Memorandum. Like, um, because it seems to me that they've sort of telegraphed the opposite, right? That they've sort of telegraphed that the consequences will be severe, uh, a la sanctions, uh, but um, but that uh, it it. it but that they are not prepared to be sort of militarily involved in responding to, to, to the Russian invasion. A- am I wrong in that assessment that they've, that they've sort of telegraphed that, um, that, that they'll be there, but not fully there if there's, if there's an invasion? Well, um, last summer, they, 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 they telegraphed it so loud and clear, it's not even funny, um, by saying that we're going to withdraw 3,000 troops from Afghanistan and let 38 million people um, end up under the yoke of the Taliban. I mean, the message there was we we so dislike any type of military engagement, even if it's it's to hold the status quo together, you know, by a shoestring with 3,000 troops that we're ready to like, you know, create a massive, 
you know, um, refugee crisis, a, a, a humanitarian disaster of un unimaginable consequences. Um, <laughs> you know, so what, what, what? So if you're Vladimir Putin and you see that, what do you think? You think they're going to go and like defend Ukraine? Of course not. They're not going to defend anybody. They're, they're, everybody is so busy licking their wounds and trying to disengage from any type of military um, uh, any involvement, no matter um, what the consequences that, that, that I mean, that, that was, that was similar, you know, Obama had a, the red line on Syria and when, um, you know, used the use of chemical weapons against civilians. And when Assad crossed that red line, um, he didn't do anything. And that was a message for every dictator that America wasn't going to get involved in all of your nasty business, do whatever you want. And, and I think the withdrawal from Afghanistan sent a similar message to dictators like Putin that, that there's such a distaste for military involvement that no one wants to do anything. Yeah, I think that's such an important point. Of course, the irony of that point is that when you are clear in sending messages of deterrence, you're actually much less likely to need to be engaged militarily. That a a posture of of uh, uh, that is that is not deterring violence and aggression eventually draws you into a position of of maybe needing to act to protect your own security. Uh, but so much ground has already been been lost in the meantime. Um, it, you know, you're you're a big part of the, the public conversation around. Uh, this this issue of uh, of of deterrence of the West kind of standing up for democratic values. Um, what what would what would you suggest to to everyday Canadians, to policymakers, to to, to everyday people in other countries um, about how to uh, about how to reassert this sense of of uh, of our own determination to defend our values, such that we we can deter. I mean, we're talking about Ukraine. We could talk about Taiwan. Um, there, there, there are a lot of cases where potentially the resolve of the West is going to be tested, and uh, and we want to deter those kinds of aggressive actions uh, so as to avoid conflicts and, pres and and preserve peace. Uh, what are the what are the concrete steps we can we can take towards doing that? Well, I, I mean, I, I um, uh, Gary Kasparov, the the chess grandmaster, and now the Russian opposition. Uh, uh, activist uh, said it very nicely. Um, we should fight them in the banks instead of with tanks. Um, you know, we, we, the, the, this is the this is the big leverage we have is economic leverage, and we have economic leverage both because there's so much. All the individuals involved in Russia and China and various other places all have money in the West, and that and 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 that doesn't cost. You know that that you know there, there's 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 no blood that will be spilled. Um, in freezing somebody's assets, and and so my big contribution, if if I've made any to the to the world, is the Magnitsky Act, which which is this incredibly surgical targeted tool, just going after specific bad guys who are the decision makers who have assets in the West, and punishing them. and And it's so easy to do; it doesn't cost us anything. No blood gets spilled, and it really does. Um, it it is truly a, a a punishment that means something and potentially a deterrent not necessarily always i mean i don't think that north korea um or the Myanmar are deterred by magnitsky sanctions because they're so disconnected from the western world but everybody who is connected to the western world um uh, is deterred by magnitsky sanctions and we know that based on how angry everybody gets when they get sanctioned and mm -hmm. and uh canada for example had the magnitsky act passed in 2017 sanctioned a bunch of people right after it was passed, and they haven't used it uh, in the last four years, since 2018. And I mean, so why? I mean, it costs nothing. You know, the, the, it costs a few million Canadian dollars a year to, to, to put lawyers in to, to, to uh, look, at look, look at evidence of, of malfeasance in China and Russia, and, then, and, and they should be sanctioning these people. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's, it's, it seems like the biggest opportunity with the lowest cost to do the most good. And, and, and you have, and it's inexplicable why, why the Canadian government would, would not do that. Yeah. So um, this has been a great conversation. And just in the, in the, in the last couple minutes that we have, let's really zero in on, on Magnitsky sanctions as a tool, uh, whether, whether we're talking about Putin, the kleptocrats around him, or those violating human rights from any part of the world. This is a, a piece of political technology that that you more or less invented, saying that we need to 
have legislative tools that allow us to target individuals who are involved in human rights abuses, sanction them as individuals to prevent them from moving their money or traveling, and that these can be punishments and deterrents, uh, recognizing the, the selfishness that, that often motivates these, these actors. Uh, sanctioning their countries don't, don't do much good because the leaders aren't in it for the good of their countries, they're in it for themselves. Uh, so, so targeting them individually is um, fight, fighting them. I, I love that, that phrase, fighting them uh, in the banks and not with tanks. Um, uh, you, you've done a lot of work getting these acts passed around the world. As you mentioned, we've had some challenges getting the Canadian government and other governments as well to use the Magnitsky sanctions tool because you pass the, the law, it gives the government a tool to use. They don't necessarily uh, use it. Um, if you can just share you know, I, I know we could, we could probably do a whole nother podcast on, uh, on the Magnitsky sanctions tool itself, but, um, but, but why is this tool so effective and what can we do uh, to, to get more countries to pass Magnitsky sanctions laws, but, but secondly, to compel governments to use the Magnitsky mm -hmm. Act uh, to target um, potentially powerful and well-connected people, uh, but to use those, those uh, financial tools to hold them accountable uh, and, uh, and, and spare a lot of, of, of blood and violence along the way by, by using financial tools instead. Well, so, so the, the reason why the Magnitsky Act is so effective is that if a person is sanctioned under the Magnitsky Act <clears throat> by the United States, Great Britain, or in Canada, the moment they get put on this list, they basically become a non-person in the world of, of commerce and finance. Every bank will close their account. Nobody will be able to send them money, receive money from them, trade with them. So for example, Kerry Lam, the governor of Hong Kong was sanctioned by the United States on the Magnitsky Act and, uh, and her bank account was closed. And so she has to receive her quite sizable salary from the Hong Kong government, which is like 800,000 uh, US dollars. Um, she's she's got to receive it in cash. <laughs> and um, you know, all of a sudden, you know, I mean, and that's humiliating, you know, she's the yeah. governor of Hong Kong and, and uh, no bank will touch her. Even a bank in her, in her district will, will, will not do business with her because those banks don't want to be in violation of, of sanctions laws. And mm -hmm. so that's the reason why. And, and, and so basically it's, and, and it's, it's really a kind of a, you know, a sort of huge black mark on anybody who gets sanctioned because it's very difficult to get unsanctioned and their lives get totally disrupted. But, but beyond just the people who are sanctioned, um, it, uh, it also scares the hell out of everybody who's done similar types of bad things and hasn't yet been sanctioned, and they're wondering if they're next. And so there, it creates sort of panic among the elite um, about who's gonna be next. Um, now, we, we, at the moment, we have 34 countries that have Magnitsky Acts around the world, and so, we're, we're just doing what I call a mopping up operation to, to finish up with what I, with the rule of law countries. We need, uh, we have the United States, Canada, UK, 27 countries of the European Union. We have Montenegro, Kosovo. Um, we got Australia in, in um, uh, December of last year. So all we need now is I think New Zealand, Japan. And um, interestingly, there's a bunch of countries within the European Union that aren't happy with how the European Union is putting this uh, implementing it. And so like the Czech Republic is going to have their own Magnitsky Act, the Irish. Uh, Which would allow them to go above and beyond the European Union. Right. Country. So if the European Union yeah. doesn't act because they get, they get vetoed by one of their members, the Czech Republic can do it independently. Ireland yeah. is doing the same thing and working on other countries. Um, but the big challenge is, is actually not getting countries to pass the legislation. It's getting them to use the legislation. And Canada is kind of a, 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 a great case study in the fact that you have this and like, why, why is, you know, like a hundred people were sanctioned by the U.S. government in December last year. And like, nobody was in Canada. Why, you know, what, what, why is Canada, Canada is supposed to be the country with like, you know, this great reputation as being a, uh, you know, this moral beacon and, and it, we're doing our best, but it's not, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, I love Canada. I love Canadians, but God almighty, do I not? Um, uh, I'm not happy with the Canadian government um, in their mismanagement of this tool. Um, and uh, I'm hoping to spend some time with uh, you and other lawmakers to, to put pressure on the Canadian government to, to start using it properly. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, the, 
the one thing that that uh, I'm really keen on uh, doing in Canada is creating some mechanism of a of a parliamentary trigger around uh, around Magnitsky sanctions, so that uh, a group of parliamentarians, perhaps a committee, perhaps it could be a a, a, a large number of citizens. Uh, Essentially, uh, we, we have we're familiar with the idea of nominating someone for an award. This would be kind of the the opposite: nominating someone for a for a Magnitsky sanction. Um, and and clearly, it it would have to remain uh, the discretion of the government. You know, you can't have uh, you can't have people that, that that aren't in the government making determinative decisions about this. Um, but that you could have groups of citizens or uh, or parliamentarians be able to nominate people for Magnitsky sanctions, and then the government would be forced to respond in some way uh, and and provide reasons. I think that uh, that could be a really powerful mechanism, and I think similar to what exists in, in the United States. So, um, um, Bill, th th thanks so much for joining us. Maybe last word to you, if you want to comment at all on this, uh, the parliamentary trigger mechanism and how that might help with the situation in Russia, if we could see uh, civil society and parliamentarians be able to compel the government to answer some of these questions about why people haven't been sanctioned. And then any any last words from you on uh, on what we need to know about uh, about Russia, how we can stand with the Russian people uh, to, to, uh, to see uh, the advance of freedom and democracy? Well, this parliamentary trigger is a, a really important idea. <clears throat> it's one that they have they have a congressional trigger in the United States, which allows Congress to challenge the president um, and, um, uh, as you say, nominate people for sanctions. And then the president has a duty to respond within 120 days to say yay or nay. Um, it should there should be such a, a, a parliamentary trigger in Canada, and there should also be uh, the Canadian government should fund. Um, a big operation in the foreign office to make sure that that um, there's enough people there to vet the information and consider sanctions and implement sanctions. I think it, part of the problem is just nobody knows how to do it, and uh, uh, that's that's not a that, that, would, that wouldn't be a good excuse if that were if that were the case. Um, and um, uh, and so I mean I'm going to definitely um, uh, do whatever I can to help you and your colleagues um, get that in place. And as far as Russia goes, I think it's really important, very important um, as a final word to say that our beef is not with the Russian people. The Russian people are just as much victims uh, as everyone else is. Our beef is with Vladimir Putin and his regime. And the more we can target him and his regime and leave the Russian people alone, um, the more likely it is um, that we'll end up with a better outcome in this whole ugly mess. Absolutely. Bill, thank you again for, for joining us, but more importantly, thank you for the incredible work you've done, uh, really inventing this piece of political technology, the, the Magnitsky sanctions uh, mechanism. Uh, and I think you've, you've left all of us with a lot to think about, about um, really the concrete steps we can take to try to uh, deter what would be a, a catastrophic uh, further invasion of Ukraine. Uh, there are things we can do about it that we have the power to do. Uh, and uh, and we should do them. Bill, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And uh, be, we'll, we'll be back uh, in a week with another episode of the Resuming Debate podcast. Please leave a review. Thanks so much and looking forward to continuing the conversation. <laughs>